Bowl season is just around the corner, and it's sure to be more difficult than ever to keep up with which players will be available and how injuries, opt-outs, and other personnel moves will impact performance on the field. At CFB Winning Edge, we do our best to stay on top of everything, which is why our player-based projection model has won 60.8% of bowl games against the spread all time. If you haven't yet, consider becoming a CFB Winning Edge Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge. And for as little as $5 per month, you'll get every bowl game projection this month. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's College Football Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. I am joined, as always, by Nicholas Enal, the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge. Follow him on the Twitter at CFB Winning Edge and Xavier Trish at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E, for all of those following him on the Twitter. And it was a fun week 15. Uh, LSU beat Florida. Florida um, got a fun SEC shorts made about them. Uh, that was a good game. USC had to come back and climb in for a win again. Uh, you know, um, uh, Coastal held on. So there were there was a lot of good stuff this week, Nick. What did you enjoy the most about it? Yeah, it, it was a uh, another fun week. And, and uh, you know, Alabama blowing out the competition yet again. I mean, it looks like maybe uh, two years in a row we have somebody in the conversation for greatest team of all time. And, and uh, the LSU win, I think, was uh, the biggest surprise, obviously. And, and uh, I saw, uh, you know, college football analytics godfather Bill Connolly uh, mentioned that not only was it the lowest win expectancy for a winning team all year, something like less than 1% uh, was Florida's postgame win expectancy, but it was one of the, the lowest on record for a team uh, to actually uh, win that game. And, and LSU got a lot of breaks, but, you know, they, they have a lot of really talented players and, and we uh, shouldn't have expected them probably to, to get through the season without knocking somebody off and, and giving somebody a, 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 you know, harder time than maybe it looked like they would in, in previous weeks. But good to see that team, you know, not give up. We've certainly seen some teams – fall off and and uh, get blown out here toward the end and, and they had you know a lot of reason to the roster's pretty decimated a lot of guys were out I think they were in the 50s for available scholarship players so uh, good to see that win for LSU and, and uh, Florida uh, according to the playoff committee it didn't really matter all that much <laughs> that's a I guess a conversation maybe for another day we don't dive too deep on on that sort of thing most of the time, but, uh, you know, they're, they're still, it seems very much in the mix. If they're somehow able to beat Alabama this week, we'll, we'll talk about that game for sure. But otherwise, you know, pretty impressed with North Carolina, uh, have to be uh, disappointed with the way Miami played defensively, but North Carolina looked pretty incredible. And, and, uh, you know, just the talent at the running back position, wide receiver position this year is, is pretty remarkable. They're, uh, they are, according to our numbers, a, a top 10 level team. And, and certainly they've had some losses, so they're not in the mix for playoff position or, or anything like that. But right now they're 12th in our power rankings. They're really high offensively in our, our team performance rankings. Been a lot of fun to watch and a, a big win for them. And, and uh, you know, otherwise it was – 
maybe a little bit sleepy. We had some some fun things. The ending of the uh, Western Michigan Ball State game was pretty uh, <laughs> just r- ridiculous. Uh, you know, we, we uh, saw, um, you know, Virginia Tech got a big win over Virginia that might have saved Justin Fuente's job for mm-hmm. what sounds like maybe another year. Uh, Auburn got a win over Mississippi State, and it looked like, you know, maybe that could have put Gus Malzahn on a, you know, better footing, but we found out, you know, just hours later that, that he was out. So couldn't uh, save him this year. <laughs> couldn't save him this year. And, and uh, that's, that's certainly a, a strange thing that, that I guess I shouldn't be shocked. I mean, he's been, uh, you know, a lot of buzz around Malzahn for, for years and, and uh, you know, portions of the fan base, not happy with him. It seems like it, it pretty much all times, but Still a little bit surprised. I mean, you know, not 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 shocked, but still a little bit surprised. I thought maybe uh, he'd done enough to to come back another year, but you know, that's that's what's sort of happening now, as we've discussed a little bit more and more each week. Now we're seeing the results on the field actually carry over into uh, immediate, you know, firings or extensions. We saw Kevin some uh, someone get let go hours after. Uh, a pretty embarrassing loss there in, in uh, your uh, current uh, home state. And, and uh, yeah, so it's it's all sort of happening. And, and, of course, you know, this week we've got regular season games, bowl games, startup, conference championship games, the coaching carousels going. Today's early national signing day. It's, it's all it's all happening right now. It's all kind of running together a little bit in my mind. So <laughs> you're uh, like Jay Bearshall from Almost Famous. It's all happening. It's all happening. You know, it, it is. It is all happening right now. There's a lot going on. We got, you know, bowls. There, there's not a selection day. The bowls are being announced early, so we're getting those uh, dropping now. And there's also, I don't think there's any requirements for bowls this year either. So any team can make it except, of course, LSU Xavier because they gave themselves a one-year ban. But uh, there, there's a lot going on. But last week, what from what you saw last week, what what was most impressive to you? <laughs> was the most impressive thing to me last week the fact that Florida lost a game off of a thrown shoe. Ah, you talk about a Georgia fan, you know we don't like Florida clearly. We also not big fans of LSU. But what right. I tell you, me and my dad were both LSU fans that night. It was it was a brilliant time. Uh, but to get into the rest of the week, obviously we had to talk about Arizona State putting up 63 points on their rival. I mean, 70. for their first, 70. Oh, no, oh, oh, 63 point gap. My bad. Uh, <laughs> for what was their first win of three games this year? Um, so I mean, that that in itself, we have to talk about. Uh, and Nick didn't hit this one, but what looked like a weird coach interaction at the end of the Pitt Georgia Tech game. Mm-hmm. It looked like uh, Coach Collins kind of brushed off. Uh, the pit head coach during the handshake, uh, almost, you know, kind of petty like, but that, that was another one for me that, you know, obviously being in Georgia, that was all over Twitter. Uh, although, although he said that wasn't a thing. Uh, we have to talk about the fact that ESPN was not letting Manny Diaz have a break on Saturday. Every time North Carolina scored, they would run this old clip from like 2013 of uh, Manny Diaz and uh, Mac Brown getting into an argument when Manny Diaz was the D coordinator at Texas. And after he gives up 550 yards to BYU and gets fired, every touchdown for North Carolina, that clip was run through. I felt so bad for Diaz the whole day. Uh, but North Carolina just absolutely shellacks Miami. And uh, I thought 
my favorite game of the week has to probably go to the Coastal Carolina game. Uh, that game was just really good. Troy played their butts off um, and then decided to play man instead of zone at the end of the ball game. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, but that's, Coastal that's Carolina, a pet peeve of yours, isn't it, Xavier? Yes. <laughs> Do not give up a win. Play for the tie. You're the lesser of – you're not the better of the two teams. Play for the tie. If he hits a field goal to send you into overtime, great. But why are we playing man-on-man when you haven't been able to stop a solo all night? What, what are we doing? Uh, yeah, that, that was just a problem for me. I didn't know this, and we didn't talk about this on the podcast, but going into the weekend, Colorado had a chance to get to the Pac-12 championship game. Didn't know that. They they blow that uh, against Utah. I think that was at home. Uh, also, didn't know Jerry Rice's kid went to uh, Colorado. So that, that was a nice little tidbit as well. Um but yeah, this week was this week was just kind of fun little tidbits all throughout. Uh, Army sh- shuts out Navy fifteen to nothing. Uh, that was obviously an impressive victory. That was yeah, that was, no yeah, that was weird. Yeah, but, but 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 perfect for both offenses where all you have to do is be able to see sideways. So you know the pitch, the handoff, you know nothing air ready about their offenses. So it was it, well, highest passer one of one twenty eight yards. So, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, just, just 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 you know that, and I'm excited for this week. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited uh, for this week. It's obviously conference week, but uh, I'm ready to go. Obviously, we have to talk about the coaches firing. And, uh, yeah, but I'm excited for this week. Yeah, let's get into the coaches getting fired. And, you know, Nick, you already mentioned it. Gus Malzahn gone at uh, Auburn uh, hours after they beat Mississippi State and they finished over 500 at 6-4. and four. He was 68-35 and 35 at Auburn. But, um, you know, a, a lot of rumors coming down right now. Hugh Freeze, Kevin Steele as the biggest ones uh what what do you think about this auburn job i mean should malzahn have been gone and who do you think is in line to take it so i i i think by now if if uh folks have been listening to us long enough i i think i'm on the slow end of things when it comes to coaching changes and and i'm not sure why exactly that is but i i think i'm just for whatever reason, a little bit slower to, to give up on somebody than I am to uh, call for a guy to, to get fired or, or in some cases, you know, really see it coming. Cause this, this was a surprise. And, and I do of course, you know, watch a lot of Auburn and, and uh, read uh, a lot of good uh, writing out there, people who, who follow Auburn and, and uh, just sort of also general buzz. I mean, hear a lot of, Oh, you know, Malzahn, uh, this year, this week, you know, on the hot seat and, and what have you. And, and he had been able to really kind of dodge that and, and, and put that off in some disappointing years, you know, in, in, in the past. And, and this season in particular wasn't great, but it wasn't anything, you know, the Auburn season has played out pretty similarly to what I would have expected. I mean, the, the what they lost to South Carolina, that was uh, uh, certainly – uh, an ugly one, but uh, other than that, I mean, things for the most part, you know, they, they won the games they were favored to win and, and lost the games where they were underdogs, but at, at a place like Auburn, excuse me, <clears throat> at a place like Auburn, that's just not good enough. And and so, you know, I, maybe I should have seen it coming a little bit more. shouldn't have been uh, as sort of surprised as, as when I first saw the news, but I think I've been, uh, part of that surprise to me is there doesn't necessarily seem to be a perfect 
answer. Kind of the way they approach this. I mean, the buyouts, what, $21.5 million, something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, you you make a decision like that, it seems to me, when you've got somebody lined up. You don't uh, put yourself on the hook for that type of money just to get a guy out of the building uh, who seemed to have you know, quite a bit of success. And, and Auburn certainly still has uh, plenty of, of room to grow recruiting-wise, but they're capable of putting up top 10 classes and, and offense, you know, has been disappointing this year. It's, it's had a little bit of uh, peaks and valleys in the past, but Malzahn is, is a uh, very much respected offensive coach. And, and then of course they have played good defense under him under Kevin Steele. And it would be really, really odd in my opinion to uh, pay somebody $21 million to go away and then hire basically the, the number two guy on staff. I mean, that's sort of a move, of course, when you're wanting to clean house, start over, go in a completely different direction. And, and Kevin Steele does have some head coaching experience, had a, a really uh, poor record at Baylor. But, you know, it's it's been quite a while, and he's been in the SEC since then. And, and so, you know, if he were to get promoted, I mean, he is one of the best defensive coordinators in the country, it would make a, a certain amount of sense, but it, it's still a bit of a strange move. So then you think, okay, who's it going to be? Is it is it Hugh Freeze? Seems like maybe the the biggest you know splashy name hire right now. Uh, that yeah, you know could could kind of see that. It would be a bit surprising to me if, if Mario Cristobal took this job or, or Lane Kiffin moved uh, from you know within the same division after just one year. You know, Billy Napier, of course, has been a name at Louisiana who's been in and out of uh, these sort of uh, rumors when an SEC job opens up would make a certain amount of sense. But I don't have a great feel for it. I I was a little bit surprised that they made the move. I was a little bit more surprised because it doesn't seem like there's a slam dunk guy uh, ready to take over. And I would be most surprised, even if it might actually be, you know, the best chance of, of success at this point, promoting from within. It's just sort of a strange series of events if, if that's what they ultimately end up deciding to do. Xavier, your thoughts on Malzahn getting let go here at Auburn? Yeah, I think this is just another one of those Mark Rick-esque firings, which is they just felt like they like he couldn't get over, over the hump. You know, and I really, you know, once Nick kind of hit it on the head, I don't know necessarily if, you know, this it makes sense for them to go in the direction of Kevin Steele. It looks like he's the guy right now that they're leaning towards. But if I'm my, in my opinion, if you want to promote from the inside, then why did you fire the guy at the top when you weren't necessarily a bad football team? And that's the biggest issue that I really have with, with, with the mouse on hire or the mouse on firing is that if you're not ready to go and get a bigger name or a guy who's going to take you to a consistent level of being atop the SEC West, or at least competing for the top of the SEC West, then why were you firing mouse on? You know, when, when Georgia fired Rick, they went and got Kirby smart. And they felt like he was going to take them to national championships and things of that nature. If you're going to hire a guy at Auburn and you're content with going nine and three again, then why did you fire Malzahn? Because that is a guy who's going to consistently have you eight and four, nine and three year after year. So that's why this firing for me didn't really make sense. Even the nature of the firing, the fact that they fired him after a COVID-related season where, you know, obviously they probably didn't have one of the best teams coming in. I just didn't really understand that from that standpoint, he doesn't have the worst record this year. It's not like he's a hardball or even a James Franklin where he had, you know, he was breaking school records and how bad he started or anything like that. 
He just had another one of the he just had a down year. And and to also pay that much money in a COVID season instead of just pretty much waiting out his contract, which I think ends not next year, but the year after. I just don't really understand the move from them. Um, and if they support Kevin Steele, hey, by all means, my opinion, they should go really, really hard and go balls to the wall to go get Freeze or go get Kiffin. Those are the two guys that I think makes the most sense. Kiffin, both of them have been in the SEC. Both of them have had success in the SEC. Both of them are big-time recruiters, which Auburn has severely struggled in. And that's the other part. You fired him the week of early National Signing Day. What are you doing? Their, yeah. their recruiting class currently ranks 12th in the SEC, just better than, I think, Arkansas and Vandy as Auburn. And they currently ranks 40th nationally. There's no time to fire your head coach in the midst of a signing day just about to happen. They lost their five-star, a five-star inside linebacker who now saying he's either going to Maryland or Tennessee and changed this and took them out of his top three and now makes it out to a top two. And I guarantee you firing Malzahn was a reason as to why he changed his mind. I don't like this firing for them. The timing is awful. I think they should have waited a year, given Malzahn another year. And uh, I hope they figure it out, but I don't I don't see, especially if they go inside with uh, Kevin Steele, I don't like that move for them at all. Kevin Freeze, if it's not one of those guys, I don't like it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it does seem like it's a weird time, but uh, this has been hanging over Malzahn's head for a while. So I'm not yeah. surprised it was done. But like you said, the timing is weird. It's hard to fire anyone right now with National Signing Day, uh, early National Signing Day being today as we're recording this. Uh, a couple other ones, Illinois and Lovey Smith parted ways. Buffalo's Lance Leopold was considered by many to be the early favorite. Uh, Kent State head coach Sean Lewis is also in there. Brett Bielema from the Giants, Jeff Monken from Army, and Dave Clawson from Wake Forest all considered. And then, like Nick mentioned as well, uh, Kevin Sumlin also gone from U of A. Uh, uh, Navy's Ken uh, Nimatololo is uh, one of the main candidates here. Also Oregon defensive line coach Joseph Alve and uh, Brent Brennan um, uh, at San Jose State have been rumored. So these these two jobs here, Illinois and Arizona, Nick, uh, how, do you think both these coaches deserve to be gone at this point? I mean, Lovey's had a while, uh, and Illinois made some upset wins but have never been really great, and this Kevin Sumlin has never put anything good together at U of A. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they both – made a certain amount of sense and, and had been trending in this direction for a few years. Lovey Smith had, had uh, elevated the talent level, I think, at Illinois, had, had kind of done a uh, had taken an interesting route by really small recruiting classes, but was able to get some, you know, four, four-star type guys uh, to sign with Illinois and, and then uh, really hit the transfer portal hard, at least in the last two years, picking up a lot of guys uh, you know, who had signed with USC specifically, but also had some guys who transferred from places like Miami and, and other, you know, bigger type programs. And, and it just wasn't really able to work out from a one loss standpoint. Last year, they had, of course, a, a big time upset of Wisconsin that helped propel them to a bowl game. Seemed like they were getting a little bit of momentum. And, and this year, uh, you know, just hasn't really been able to, to, to carry that over. I, I like Levy Smith a lot. And, and uh, thought, you know, it, it, he seemed like a good fit at Illinois. It was always weird timing when he got there and it always felt a, a little bit, uh, he felt maybe a, a little bit out of place for whatever reason, being just such an NFL guy for so long. But uh, I think that 
you know, maybe there were there were some positives to take from his tenure there, but it also makes a, a certain amount of sense to go in a different direction. And it sounded like from the wording of the the statements that I saw that it was kind of a, a mutual thing that maybe Lovey was ready to to move on and and go on and, and either do something else, maybe or, or just retire. But uh, you know, somebody needs to hire Lance Leopold, and, and Illinois would be a good place for that. He's he's somebody that has won a lot of games. Uh, has been in some places where it's somewhat difficult to recruit, where you have to be a really good talent evaluator and a developer of players. And, and uh, he's done that at, at Buffalo and, of course, was a, a big-time uh, winner at the Division Three level and, and, you know, has proved himself, I think, as a FBS head coach. And, and uh, we talked a little bit about him at, at, uh, when, we, when the Vanderbilt discussion came up briefly last week. He was kind of my favorite for that job, but you know, Illinois probably makes more sense. So I, I would love that, but they've got you know some some pretty big names that could consider this. They seem to have uh, some relatively deep pockets there in the athletic department, where uh, the powers that be seem to be willing to invest in this program, and and uh, so it's not necessarily a sleeping giant, maybe, but it's it's a program I think that has some. Uh, ability to grow. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that works. Arizona's kind of a, a strange one. I mean, someone, again, you know, similar to, to Lovey Smith, the timing was really strange on when he got there. And it just sort of, I think, didn't necessarily start on the right foot and wasn't really able to, to ever get it corrected. I mean, Lovey Smith had 2019 as a bright spot, but, you know, for, for someone in Arizona, uh, basically after the, you know, uh, magical month that Khalil Tate put together in what was that, 2017, 2018? I mean, uh, other than that, I mean, it's it's been really, really rough at, at Arizona. And, you know, uh, Ken Niamatololo, it sounded like, was was really in the mix before someone got hired. So it's interesting that he's a name that's been discussed a lot here, and he's a triple option coach, which I know some folks would really be excited to see a triple option offense, you know, back at the Power 5 level now that Georgia Tech's moved in a, a different direction and it made sense in some discussions about a place like Vanderbilt, Arizona has a, a little bit uh, better recruiting options. So it's, it's a little bit strange there, but um, you know, it, it also, there seems to be a lot of uh, thought that Niamatololo wouldn't necessarily bring the triple option that he would, uh, you know, likely have a new offensive coordinator. Ivan Jasper, I guess would, would be the most likely to get promoted there and become the head coach at Navy Niamatololo. Uh, does have a little bit of run and shoot background in his uh, in his past. Doesn't have to be a triple option type guy. So uh, they could go in a lot of different directions there. But then uh, there's a lot of uh, you know pushing from uh, alums and people close to the program to bring somebody with strong Arizona ties. So somebody like uh, Joe. Uh, Salavea, who's at Oregon, the defensive line coach, has gotten a lot of mentions. And, and uh, then somebody like Brent Brennan, who at San Jose State, you know, has done a pretty, pretty remarkable job. They were one of the worst teams in college football uh, just just two years ago. And, and uh, to be able to uh, take that team, turn it around in a very difficult year with a lot of off the field stuff. Uh, have them undefeated in the Mountain West Championship and, and in the top 25 of the college football playoff. Uh, pretty, pretty remarkable. And, and, uh, you know, sounds like maybe, uh, somebody that, uh, could come in and, and rejuvenate a program. So I don't have a ton of ideas necessarily on who's the right guy in, in 
either of these jobs, but I'm intrigued by both because they both seem to have a little bit of room for, for improvement and would be interesting to see uh, if uh, somebody's able to, to take on a bigger job and, and maybe help elevate uh, the level of that particular program. So these are two that I'll, I'll be watching for sure. Xavier, what do you think about the Illinois and U of A job? Uh, who, who would you like to see in there? And, and was it time? I mean, we know it was time for someone. What yeah. do you think about, about Lovey? Well, I, I think Lovey, and this is, I just think Lovey, when it's a mutual thing, I think they both know that maybe he's gotten them as far as, you know, physically. It's at least more mutual than Arizona. We know that. Right. And, right. and, and yeah. Gus Malzahn at Auburn. So Yeah, and, and sometimes when you see a coach step down like that or, or mutually decide on getting fired, he, he probably feels like he got them as far as he could. You know, and, and in this year in particular, like I said, for a lot of these smaller, less talented teams, it was going to be really hard for them to put together solid seasons. You know, nine times out of ten with these with these schools in particular, you can't just throw four – you know, you can throw a four-star, five-star out there and just tell them to play football. And he might be able to come up with some semblance of, uh, you know, talent towards the end of the year. When you have more of a three-star, four-star, you know, two-star kind of team, you need that time to teach, to, to cultivate – and to develop talent. And without that, it really put a, a hamper on a lot of these smaller teams, uh, specifically teams like Illinois that play in big conferences with a lot of talent at the top and, and them not being the ones holding that talent. So I feel like for Illinois, you know, uh, him stepping down, it, it was more mutual. And it's cool. I think that it's right for him to go and allow a younger guy to come in who may be more hungrier, uh, who may be, you know, ready to take on the, the day-to-day task of running the college football team. Obviously, for Lovey, he's been in coaching for forever. So Nick's probably right. He may retire. He may go into commentating for a couple of years and maybe get the urge to come back. But I think he was just ready to go. Um, as far as a coach, you know, I've heard this thing thrown around a lot. And and I'm surprised it wasn't thrown around more for the Auburn job. But Steve Sarkeesian is a guy I genuinely think needs to get to this, decide, needs another opportunity. He got to Atlanta. It was a bad situation. He was thrown into a situation where, you know, he was at OC there and he really didn't need to be. I think it was a, a – a panic hire from the Falcons. And I think that ruined a lot of people's ideas of what he could be as a head coach, but he's gotten time. He's gone to the Nick Saban rehab program as a coach, you know, and now he should, I think he should be given a shot. It, will it be at Illinois? Will it be at um, Arizona? I don't know, but I think this is a guy who's definitely trending in that direction. And I've heard that name thrown around a lot. So I think it should be thrown. It should be said on this podcast. Um, as far as the Arizona job, someone needed to go. He just yeah. needed to go. I mean, he, you know, I feel like, Sumlin and Chip Kelly, both of them, I felt like if they both came into this year and had terrible seasons, they were both it was both time for them to go because they hadn't done anything at the university to keep their jobs the year prior. Um, you know, they had both had really rough time of it at both universities. Heck, Chip Kelly lost Under Armour because they said that, you know, they wanted to be part of a more competitive team. So they decided we're going to cancel our contract. So, you, we, I mean, we know the fire that he was under there. But I don't know who is somebody I would like at Arizona because it's a tough job in my opinion. You know, obviously you're in the Pac-12, you know, Scott, you know more than anything how easy it is to recruit in that state. And on the other end, you've got a team in Arizona State right now that is a budding program with, I mean, a a Hall of Fame coaching, you know, tree over there that, you know, the names just say for themselves. And I think that makes it very difficult in the state that you're in. Uh, obviously not getting blown, getting blown out 70 to seven isn't going to help your calls uh, going forward for any coach. Uh, but I really don't know where Arizona goes from here. Do they go with a young guy and allow him to kind of work his way into the job and be patient? Because I think that that's the way that they should go. Cause they try to go with the big name. You know, they try to go with a big name who didn't necessarily work 
at a university. You know, I would hate for them to go out and go get a guy like Charlie Strong. Like, stay away from the big guys. Stay well, away from two, the guys. Two in a row, too, is Rich Rodriguez to Kevin. Exactly. So, you know. Yeah. So yeah, let's go for let's go for a younger guy mm-hmm. and uh, let them work their way in. It's not going to change overnight, obviously. Right. So, but get get someone young enough in there, in my opinion. To where they can just stick with them for five or six years and see how it plays out. So, yeah, let them be patient. Yeah, yeah. It, it, they need the patience of Michigan, is what they need. So uh, we'll see if they get it. But, uh, <laughs> right, right. A couple of other jobs. Uh, Arkansas State head coach uh, Blake Anderson made the move to Utah State, so be coaching there. And then uh, former Tennessee head coach Butch Jones is going to take over at Arkansas State. Uh, leaving his role at Alabama, Indiana defensive coordinator Kane Womack uh, is going to go to South Alabama as the head coach where he was defensive coordinator a few years ago. And Vanderbilt hired uh, Clark Lee, the first name on the most lists for the Vandy job and the least surprising hire. A Coastal Carolina gave head coach Jamie Chadwell a seven-year extension. So uh, he is going to be sticking there for a while. I'm uh, assuming the buyout is enormous as well. So, uh, Nick, how about the rest of these uh, <laughs> these coaching moves here? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Blake Anderson's had some personal uh, tragedy that, that it sounded like he was just ready for a change of scenery and, and a fresh start. So that was, uh, uh, you know, what looks like on paper, a, a lateral move uh, made a certain amount of sense, but kind of kept the ball rolling a little bit. That's a, a really solid job. Arkansas State has, has had, you know, some recent history of success and, and have some really great facilities there and, and a, a relatively talented pocket of uh, the country. So uh, a, a perfect opportunity for Butch Jones to get back, had a lot of success as a G5 head coach. And, and uh, you know, obviously it didn't work out for him at Tennessee, but has been uh, there at Alabama and, and uh, you know, combine that experience with uh, his, his uh, you know, instincts and, and abilities as a uh, G5 head coach in the past have to think that Arkansas State's probably set up for a, a pretty good future. Uh, South Alabama is a program kind of under the radar, but in a, a really, really talent-rich area in Mobile, uh, mm-hmm. very close to Florida, very close to Georgia, and, and uh, you know, d- good weather, all, all that great stuff. And, and they've had a lot of uh, investment in the program recently, brand new stadium, uh, Kane Womack has history with the program there, is on one of the, the most impressive defensive uh, stabs the, that we've seen this season. I mean, offense, of course, has been the story of the season and, and the last few years, but Indiana defensively has been uh, a big, big part of, of their uh, success here recently and, and Womack being a big part of that. So interested to see what happens there. And then, yeah, Clark Lee was, the when, it, when we first heard Derek Mason was, out. He was the name that was just immediately, okay, this is this is the guy. Notre Dame defensive coordinator, played at Vanderbilt from Nashville. Uh, seems like a lot of people, you know, this isn't anything new. A lot of people have made this uh, comparison, but kind of seems like the Pat Fitzgerald potentially for Vanderbilt, a guy that just absolutely loves the place. You know, the, the expectations are not particularly high. But will you know has a track record to to be able to potentially put together uh, some success and wouldn't be you know 
probably likely to, to just jump ship immediately, would be happy to uh, come in and, and be a longtime coach in a place and uh, be able to, to, you know, put together uh, uh, every few years a run at a bowl game or, or something like that. And, and both sides, you know, the administration and the coaching staff might be happy with that sort of arrangement. So uh, we'll, we'll see, you know, and, and uh, Vanderbilt, I think there's, there is some potential, maybe sounds like maybe some facilities might be getting upgraded and, and things like that. And of course it is a uh, really great, you know, city that attracts a lot of people might be some opportunity potentially to uh, to grow a little bit as a as a recruiting spot as well, despite the high academic standards. But you know, uh, home run hires don't actually you know say they don't always work out. It, it seems like in recent years they don't often work out. I mean, I remember Kevin Sumlin being like, "Oh, that's perfect, absolutely the perfect landing spot for him being Arizona." And and there are other uh jobs that you know you kind of think like that i mean harbaugh and michigan like oh perfect that's that's a perfect match they're going to be national championship contenders for years and it just hasn't quite worked out to the level that, that we expected doesn't always work out like that but this seems like a perfect hire on, on paper it seems like good for vanderbilt seems like good for clark lee and you know uh, uh, somebody that's that's really really well uh really highly respected as a defensive play caller, as a coach, uh, seems like, you know, maybe if he didn't have Vanderbilt ties, he would be kind of out of their league. So uh, perfect fit for them and and hope it works out. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you think about these, uh, these signings out here? I mean, I think Clark Lee was maybe the most obvious and the least surprising of all of these. Yeah. But I think it was the best one for them. I, yeah. 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 To get a guy, you know, and Alma Mater obviously being Vandy, born and raised in Nashville, and with his pedigree as well. I mean, this is a guy who's turned Notre Dame's defense into a force over the last two years. And as you, as we've seen this year, has led them to having one of the better defenses in college football. And I really like this hire from them. Once again, it wasn't a splash hit. And the number one thing that Nick said is Nashville is an amazing city. You've got to be able to recruit there. The the, the state of Tennessee is a hot spot for recruiting. And while Tennessee is down, you have to be able to get your recruiting in uh, because that's the number one thing. That, that is how Vandy will get and will, how they will progress. Because if Tennessee continues to stay down, then you're in an opportunity where you can take the state over recruiting-wise. You know, obviously, Tennessee still every year somehow gets a top 10 recruiting class because of who they are. That should tell you the amount of talent that's in Tennessee that Vandy can then profit off of. So I really like the Clark Lee hire for them. What I don't like, is giving a six-year extension for a coach who had his first really, really, really good season. I hate these extensions because it puts you in a situation as a university where if it goes bottoms up, you end up like Auburn having to fork out you know, $21 million because you decided to give a head coach an extension when you didn't have to. I'm under the notion you give money out when you need to give money out. So and it comes to the end of their deal, maybe a year before the end of their deal, then you give them the money if they've earned it at that point. However, if you if they if his contract and it wasn't coming up, I don't like this extension at all. I feel it, it, the same problem that Michigan has. They gave Harbaugh all that money last year. Look at where they're at now, and they can't get rid of them. Why? Because they're under all of this money. I don't like moves like this. You have to be more pragmatic when you're talking about coaches. One because they're at a they're they're at a G five school and he can leave next week for a school that you know of, of that uh, suits him better. And two, 
you when you put yourself financially, when you restrict yourself financially like this, then you have to keep a guy just simply based off the fact that you have all this money tied into him. Uh, so I, I really do not like that move for them at all. So I, 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 I disagree with that actually. Me I, too. I, <laughs> I think that this is is really kind of a no lose for Coastal Carolina. I mean, Jamie Chappell is somebody that got a lot of uh interest it sounded like i mean immediately when jobs started to open up he thought oh jamie chadwell i mean they're 11 and 0 and, and you know knocking on the door of the top 10 could be uh potentially the g5 uh you know if things work out this weekend could get that new york uh new year six spot and and you know i know in in coaching circles uh you know, high school coaches, and, and I'm sure it's going to uh, spread even more at the college level this year, but are just salivating at, at the things that Coastal Carolina does offensively. And, and so he's he's a hot name right now, but Coastal Carolina is a program that is is kind of interestingly positioned. They're young, uh, but they are in a prime location right outside of, of Myrtle Beach, a, a really uh, exciting spot. I mean, the Sun Belt prestige-wise has taken a big step forward this year. So they're able to, to kind of lock their guy down and not nearly at the money. I mean, we're not talking just Malzahn money. I'm not sure what the exact numbers are, but I'm, I know it's it's nothing, nothing like that. Uh, to the point where, you know, you, you, you keep your guy – for another year, at least, is what it sounds like, and 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 uh, then kind of you have an incentive to to say like, hey, we put, uh, you know, we put up our end of the bargain, a, a lot of money here to keep you happy, to, to give you the things that you want to stay here. That's great, but also it helps uh, if somebody comes in and, and wants to take him away in twenty twenty one or, or twenty twenty two, then they're going to have to foot you know, uh, some buyout money to, to hire him away. So then Coastal Carolina is in a, a better spot financially. They're not going to be on the hook. I mean, the only way it goes wrong, and I think this was was maybe your immediate point, which I think is not a, a real big concern. I could kind of see it. But if this is just sort of a one-year wonder situation where Coastal Carolina jumps up, has this great year, and then just comes back down to kind of being a, a team that we don't, think about or talk about very often. I I would be surprised if that happens. It certainly could happen. And we have seen some guys uh, like in the past, somebody like Mark Hudson at uh, uh, Louisiana was a hot name, stuck around a little too long uh, and ended up not, you know, getting a big job after things sort of kind of start, you know, came back down the other side. But uh, I, to me, this, this feels like a, a no lose situation for, for Coastal Carolina. Yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta keep the guy around, you know. <laughs> yeah, he yeah, he has another good winning season, and there's going to be teams all over him. So you got to make it harder for them to buy him out. In that's, my that's fair. And I'm not, yeah. and, and that's a fair point. I just I'm under the app state method, which is if you want him, take him. We'll find another one because our organization and what we have here is good enough to keep around. You know, but uh, I think app state's been good enough for long enough to have that attitude. And Coastal Carolina hasn't. So, and, and it's a gamble. You're absolutely right. It is a gamble. So we'll see if it pays off then. But uh, well, one more uh, piece of news, and we don't have to talk about this because we're going to be talking about all of these moves in the offseason. So I'll just run through them real quick. Transfer Portal has had a lot of action. Uh, Baylor's Charlie Brewer's in there. Duke's Chase Bryce is in again. Remember, he started out at Clemson. Um, Kenzie Milton uh, with Florida State is going to Florida state, which was kind of surprising to see a guy that has had a bad injury as he had 
uh, going to Florida State with that offensive line that has not been great so far. Uh, and then Houston Baptist quarterback Bailey Zapp is a guy to watch because his OC was hired at Western Kentucky, and uh, he was huge for you Houston Baptist this, this uh, year. So we're going to have – I mean, 1,833 yards, 15 touchdowns in four games. So, um, and three of those were against FBS teams. So, great stats for him. But we're gonna we're gonna dive more deep on transfer portal stuff and all that uh, moving forward in the offseason. We got too many conference championship games and bowl games to talk about in our near future. So we're not picking games this week, guys. We're gonna do uh, a little bit quicker, Nick. Um, you know, a little bit quicker moving through the uh, conference championships this week but let's just start out with oregon at usc uh usc's a three-point favorite 64 is the over this is a pac-12 championship and uh it's supposed to be washington but washington can't play because of covid so they're just like okay oregon go ahead and take our spot so uh very strange but who do you like in this one nick yeah this, this one is a uh of course an interesting situation as you mentioned i just saw just before we started recording because colorado could still potentially play in this game uh, if if usc has covid issues that, that flare up colorado could uh, swoop in and, and play oregon who they were originally scheduled to play oregon when washington was scheduled to play usc and it sounds like the equipment truck uh, the colorado equipment truck is uh, positioned halfway between Boulder and LA right now, uh, just in case something happens in the next, you know, dozen hours or whatever, uh, then the, the truck would continue out on that journey. But for now, they're sort of stationed somewhere in Utah, uh, apparently just kind of waiting on, on this game. But it, it, it's weird. The Pac-12, the whole thing is, is strange. Uh, but this, you know, these are the best two teams, it seems like. And, and Oregon is maybe a little bit weaker than we expected and, and you know, coming into the, the normal preseason process because they had a lot of guys opt out. I mean, Penny Sewell on the offensive line, and that, of course, had, them you know, five uh, new starters on the offensive line. They had a new starting quarterback coming in. Taylor Shuck's been uh, decent, I think, shown some flashes, but also has looked like a first-time starter. Uh, you know, uh, quite a few times as well. The secondary was expected to be among, if not the best, in college football. They've had multiple guys opt out of the season and, and start preparing for the NFL draft. So Oregon is a little bit watered down compared to what we expected. USC had a couple of guys uh, opt out, an offensive lineman and a defensive lineman, but for the most part uh, has been, uh, you know, a little bit stronger for the most part. They, they, they have had some injuries on both sides of the football, but Keaton Slovis has gotten better and better each week. It seems like, in, in my opinion, the receivers are among the best in college football, certainly the best uh, in, in the Pac-12. And uh, defensively, there there's certainly some uh, things to like about USC as well. I mean, Tuala Lafonga is, is one of the uh, most fun defensive players uh, to, to watch in, in college football, Huvanka. Uh, safety slash linebacker kind of hybrid guy there, but ton ton of fun to watch, high energy all over the field. And, and he's uh, taken on a, a, a bigger role as they've had 
some injuries at the linebacker position and, and a guy uh, starter, uh, Teoteote, uh, going to the transfer portal somewhat unexpectedly. So he's been playing a, a bigger role and a little bit different role. And then Drake Jackson's a, a guy, edge rusher, is a, a potential first-round pick. So these are the most, you know, two most talented teams in uh, the Pac-12. I mean, they are, uh, you know, on paper uh, and, and by most folks' uh, evaluations, you know, definitely or position by position, the, the most talented. So uh, that will be certainly fun to watch. But, you know, USC is a team that, though they aren't, you know, clicking on all cylinders, they've ha- they've been somewhat fortunate to, to stay undefeated. They've had some games where they've really had to, you know, pull it out at the end, look really shaky early on, Arizona State most specifically. But, you know, just last week, of course, against uh, UCLA, we're trailing almost all game. And and so that's not playing real well with a lot of uh, casual viewers. It's not playing real well with uh, the playoff committee who wants to apparently see more dominance and, and uh, uh, you know, things like that. So they're, they're still outside the top 10 looking in. But this is a quality USC team, and it's capable, I think, of of matching up against uh, really any any team that it could play in in college football. You know, they've got the skill position guys for sure, uh, but they've got enough talent across the board, in, in my opinion, to uh, be you know in in a game against any opponent. Oregon matches up pretty well. Oregon, uh, looking at our position rankings, is in the top 10 on, on the defensive line. Guys like Kayvon Thibodeau, they're still a top 10 unit in the secondary, top 15 at linebacker with uh, true freshman Noah Sewell will be one of the most exciting guys in college football. And they've got top 20 skill position guys. I mean, Devon Williams, a, a, a USC transfer, has been pretty impressive when we've gotten to see him in, in spurts this year. The running back position is deep. They've had some injuries with guys like C.J. Verdell, but uh, you know, uh, Travis Dye has stepped up, and, and uh, uh, they 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 certainly have uh, you know other players capable as well. If Verdell is going to continue to be uh, limited, so this is a, it's a really you know uh, evenly matched uh, matchup. And, and our three models that we always talk about are our stats only model has USC favored slightly by about one and a half. Uh, our, our talent model actually gives USC a, a bigger edge because uh, it does incorporate, in addition to recruiting ratings, some experience, some career production. And right now, USC is just a little bit more established. Oregon has, you know, a lot of youth that they are relying on. And so, you know, high ratings for a guy like Keaton Stovis and, and that receiving core is going to help uh, kind of open up that gap a little bit over Oregon, who's got Shuck, a sophomore, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Williams is a sophomore at, at receiver. And, of course, that offensive line we talked about is uh, uh, the weakest unit on paper at 45. And, and that's because they've just, you know, they lost a ton. They, they only have one guy uh, who came into this this year with any career start. So uh, it, it's not a shock that USC would be favored. They're favored by about five in our talent edge model. Uh, but when we put it all together and, and you know, put in the coaching, the talent, uh, and, and, and the stats and, and run the, the official model, it's almost a coin flip. And, and so uh, we are on Oregon plus three. We do have USC favored by about a third of a point. Uh, but our final score prediction is USC 29, Oregon 28. That seems about right to me. Uh, just a really 
really close game, another close game for USC. Uh, would not be at all surprised, really. However, this this game kind of you know turns out it could certainly be an Oregon upset. Uh, but it wouldn't shock me at all if USC is able to, to stay undefeated and, and get out with another uh, close victory and, and you know Pac-12 title at the, at the end of it. Xavier, how do you see the Pac-12 title game going? I do know this much. It's going to be an absolute blowout. Neither one of these teams have shown an ability to play defense consistently all season. Uh, when I look at USC, this is a team that hurries me. Uh, I'll be honest, because I think going into a game like this, this is be the first game that I feel like if they get down in, they might not have the talent to come back. You know, you look at this or you look at this Oregon offense very at least, and this Oregon off- offense has been really good all year up until really pretty much last week uh, when they only scored 17 points, but they scored 30 plus points in every game but last week. So this Oregon offense can go. And my issue with USC is if they come out and struggle, if they start slow like they did against Arizona State, like they did against Arizona, like they did against UCLA, can they? Do they have the horses to get back into the ball game against a team as talented as Oregon? The teams I just named, Arizona, UCLA, Arizona State, those teams aren't nearly as talented as Oregon are. So my issue with that, with, with that is my issue with USC. When I look at an Oregon team, I look at a team that really has just late game has not been able to get over the hump. And I think that that's been their biggest issue, learning how to finish, being able, you know, and maybe that's due to a young quarterback. Maybe that's due to a younger team than what they had last year. But their ability to finish in the second half and put teams away has been my biggest issue with them all year. And I think that that is going to go into this week's game, that those two things, USC's ability to come back and Oregon's inability to finish are going to come together. And I, that's why I think USC wins this ball game. I think for the first time all year, we get a really good performance from USC in the first half and Oregon can't keep up. And I think that the youth on the Oregon side is really going to hurt them. I think when you look at the USC team, you look at that offense, and I, th- I see juniors, I see guys who played significant roles last year, Keen Slovis, Amar Ross Brown, Tyler Vons, guys offensively who are going to be more locked into this game than they probably have been all year. And at the end of the day, USC – whether or not they, you know, will actually get into the college football playoff is pretty relevant for them. An undefeated season is an undefeated season. Uh, even with it having an asterisk next to it, if it being a COVID season, still is going to be impressive for them to put uh, on their record book. So I think the USC comes out, finally plays four quarters of football instead of just two, which they've been playing all year. And USC <laughs> wins, wins by 10 to 13 points. I think Oregon's youth is really going to hurt them in this ball game. And I got Oregon, I got, so I got USC by 13. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to be way tougher to come back against Oregon than the other teams they have uh, this yeah. season, for sure. Uh, what about the the Fun Belt Championship here? It's Louisiana at Coastal Carolina. Uh, Coastal Carolina favored by three and a half. The over is 55 in this game, Nick. How do you see the Sun Belt Championship playing out here? This is a, another very evenly matched game, at least as far as our numbers go. And, and we did talk a little bit about Coastal Carolina with, uh, you know, with, with Jimmy Chadwell and, and the success that he's had there. The offense really seemed to click under retro freshman Grayson McCall at, at quarterback. They've had C.J. Marable, who's been a good running back for them in the past. They've had Javon Hiley, uh, who's been a, a quality receiver, a little bit banged up, has been banged up for weeks. But uh, he and, and Isaiah likely give them two options, the, the tight end there, uh, to really, you know, attack a defense through the air in addition to what basically is a triple option offense, uh, but run out of the shotgun, run out of 
uh, spread formation. So it, it, you know, doesn't quite get uh, sort of the, the level of hate that you might see. Uh, you know, if somebody were to, to, to go after uh, Jamie Chadwell as a head coach, you'd have a little bit more excitement maybe in the fan base than if it were Kidney Montalolo, just sort of the way things are packaged. So uh, that, you know, contrast with Louisiana having uh, Billy Napier, who has been uh, really had this this program clicking along uh, since he's been there. And, and uh, the, the depth that they've got at running back continues to to really drive the offense. Guys like Elijah Mitchell and, and Trey Regas. Chris Smith has gotten into the act a little bit more uh, this year than in years past. He's also a weapon in special teams. And then Levi Lewis is a quarterback that's really impressed me uh, all season. I, I think that he is – I think Levi Lewis is an NFL player. He's not going to play quarterback at the next level, but he's somebody I, I could see transitioning to the running back position specifically. But he, he's a guy that's that is you know accelerates when he uh, decides to take off. He's very athletic and can uh, really hurt uh, teams with his legs, but also has been able to show some improvement as a passer as well. They're still looking for you know the, the playmakers. They don't have a Javon Hiley type guy at receiver. They don't really have an Isaiah Likely at, at tight end. So they, they are a little more one-dimensional. They do have some success through the air when they need it, but you know not quite as multiple as uh, Coastal Carolina can be. Uh, but, you know, Louisiana is, is a, a top 25 type team, and uh, they are actually still our, our number one uh, rated team in the Sun Belt. They're 27th in our power rankings, and, and Coastal Carolina is 32nd. Now, Coastal Carolina does have the home field advantage. This isn't, uh, you know, a, a just real quick trip. It is, you know, going from Louisiana to South Carolina is, uh, you know, there, there's a little bit of travel uh, there that could play into it a little bit. There will be some fans in the stands, not uh, a huge, huge crowd, but we've seen as recently as a couple of weeks ago when, when college game day was there that, you know, they can still create a, a uh, fun and, and intimidating environment. And, and Coastal Carolina is really tough to beat. We're, we're the only team so far uh, to beat BYU and, and really gave them trouble uh, specifically on, on defense, which was a, a bit of a surprise. So a good sign moving forward when you're facing a team like Louisiana that uh, is very physical similarly and, and can run the football. Uh, so I, I think it'll be a close game. I think it'll be very well played. Our numbers see it pretty similarly to what we just talked about with USC and, and Oregon. Our uh, Both actually our stats model and our talent models actually side with uh, Louisiana by about a, a field goal. Our talent model specifically has really underrated Coastal Carolina all year. Our stats model has been a, a little bit better, uh, but they've still been underrated by, by both of those models. But uh, our official projection actually still does have uh, the Chanteliers winning the game, but only by about half a point is our projection. So we do have Coastal winning and staying undefeated, getting the, that Sun Belt title. But it's so close that, you know, things can can go one way or the other very easily. A field goal one way or the other, a touchdown one way or the other. Uh, so we're on Louisiana Lafayette, uh, on Louisiana to cover. Uh, the final projected score is 31 to 30, uh, but with Coastal getting that win. So I don't have a strong read one way or the other, but this is one where all three of our models think that the Cajuns can cover. So uh, that has been a, a pretty successful uh, subset for us this year. It is a, an all three agree uh, for us. And, and so I guess I'm, you know, 
somewhat pleased with that. We don't have very many of them this week, so we'll need uh, Louisiana to have a good showing to, to keep our uh, numbers high on that one. And, and Xavier, I'm sure that uh, uh, I'm sure that this fits for your narrative of not wanting to give Jamie Chatwell that seven-year extension is uh, as soon as they do, uh, they'll lose to Louisiana in the conference title game, right? I would love to say that Louisiana was supposed to win this ball game, uh, but everything po points to Coastal Carolina being, and this is, I think, a big, big thing here is that Coastal Carolina has played a tougher schedule at this point. They are the more battle-tested team. They are coming to this game the most, probably the most confident team maybe in the country. They're up there probably second or third most confident team up there in the country because they have put together a heck of a run right now. You know, they they went and beat BYU. You know, they, they, they've been able to stay undefeated up until this point. They beat Louisiana away earlier this year, you know, by a field goal, but still they beat them on the road. And now that they're playing, and Nick hit it right on the head, this game is not a neutral site. This is not a neutral site. This is, you know, this is like a, this is like Georgia playing this SEC championship game. It's not a neutral site game. This is pretty much a home game for Coastal, as close as they are to the Sunbelt championship game. This is going to be more of a home game for them. And I think that's really going to help them in this ball game because I think Louisiana has a, you know, has a vendetta. This, this is a team that ruined their undefeated year. And I think that this is going to be a really good matchup. But Coastal Carolina offensively, I think, just has a little bit more. And that's the reason why I'm going to pick Coastal here. Nick hit it right on the head. Louisiana has been, been very one-dimensional at times this year, and that's made them very susceptible to close games against uh, teams that shouldn't probably be on the same field with them. I mean, if you just go down their wins list, they've had like three games, five, actually four or five games, by one score or less. And these are teams that are far less talented and, and far less confident than what Coastal Carolina is bringing to the table uh, on Saturday. And that's why I like Coastal Carolina, their ability offensively to throw and run versus Louisiana's really just ability to run the ball. Levi Lewis is a decent quarterback, but you, you wouldn't have him drop back 30 times to win you a ball game. I got Coastal win this game. Uh, I think Coastal finishes the season undefeated. And no, Scott, not yet. He doesn't lose his first game yet, not after the contract. Uh, all right, the next one here is the uh, Big 12 championship, Oklahoma yeah. versus Iowa State in Arlington. Uh, Oklahoma is a five-and-a-half-point favorite here, Nick. Uh, and, and this is the last of the close one. Every other every other game we're going to go over today is 10 points or more yeah. uh, as far as the spread goes, uh, un except for these first three. Uh, Oklahoma, five-and-a-half-point favorite against Iowa State. I mean, this would be this would mean so much for Iowa State to win this game. I'm clearly going to be rooting for them, but I don't, I don't know. I think uh, Oklahoma might win this game. How do you see it playing out, Nick? Well, I mean, Iowa state has proven that they can beat Oklahoma, right? I mean, they, they beat them 37 to 30 earlier this year. Uh, Oklahoma has not lost since and, and really has looked much, much better uh, at least since, you know, maybe the, the week after that, that Texas game uh, defensively and, and Oklahoma's defensive, improvement I think right now is really the story I was just going back and, and looking through our defensive team performance uh, rankings in, in recent years and in 2018 Oklahoma of course a playoff team in, in both 2018 and 2019 Oklahoma had the 97th uh, ranked defense in the country according to our defensive team performance rankings and that's uh, we, we throw in a lot of metrics into a formula, you know, things like uh, expected points added per play, you know, 
uh, on the run, on the uh, against the pass, uh, yards per play, yards per drive, points per drive, all that sort of stuff, and and compare that historically is is uh, sort of how we get our ratings and then uh, set our rankings, of course, up you know year by year. But uh, so they're they're ninety seventh in twenty eighteen. They were fifty second last year. So basically cut it in half, made a, a big, big step forward. But still, we were talking after they got blown out by LSU, how the defense still had such a long way to go. Well, they're they're getting there. They're they're in thirteenth right now in defensive team performance. And you know, they they've looked like a solid defensive team in recent weeks and, and, you know, held Baylor to 14 last week, held Oklahoma state to 13 the week before Uh, they, you know, of course, 28 gave up 28 to to Texas tech. Not great. Gave up 45 to Texas. Not great. Uh, But I think we've seen some progress, not only year to year over the last three years under uh, defensive coordinator, Alex Grinch, but we've seen some improvement uh, from week to week. And I think that this defense right now, is a better defense than the one that uh, Iowa State faced earlier this season, and, and part of that is Ronnie Perkins is, is there now. Uh, you know, the, the edge rusher there, uh, Oklahoma's best pass rusher, uh, bar none. Ronnie Perkins is, is one of the best pass rushers in uh, the Big Twelve, if not college football as a whole. But you've also got a guy like Isaiah Thomas who's playing at you know basically a, a a big 12 all big 12 level maybe in the conversation for conference player of the year defensively if not nick benito if, if he's not going to be there uh and i know he missed the last game i, I don't know if if we're 100 sure if benito will be back uh for uh the game this weekend but um you know that that's uh still a lot of talent at least in the front seven there and iowa state is a team that uh, really relies heavily on the running game. And Brees Hall is a, a Heisman contender, kind of on the, the outside fringe of the, the major, major candidates, but he's a guy, you know, top five, top six type conversation. Brock Purdy is somebody that started off slow this year, but we've seen win a lot of games, have a lot of success uh, throwing the football and, and, you know, has some weapons to work with. Guys like... Tariq Milton, who's been in and out of the lineup with some injuries, but Xavier Hutchinson has is, is, uh, been a go-to guy for them. Charlie, uh, Charlie Kohler is one of the best tight ends in the country. So uh, have some weapons there as well. And, and then, you know, it's it, will Oklahoma uh, be able to really score enough? And, and that's not something that we uh, say very often because, you know, usually, absolutely, Oklahoma can score on just about anybody. But uh, even though Spencer Rattler has gotten better over the course of the year, even though Ramondre Stevenson in a similar situation to Perkins wasn't available the first time out, has taken over as that number one guy, but they haven't really been rolling at an elite level. Uh, they're outside of the top 10 in our team performance rankings really for the first time since uh, Lincoln Riley got there. They're 14th offensively. Uh, they've been, you know, uh, in the top three, basically, each of the last uh, three or four years. So they're taking a little bit of a step back on offense. But I think if uh, you you take into account how much they have improved defensively, in, in you know, specifically the, the numbers, but also uh, they've got a lot of talent there, and, and we've been able to see it on the field as well. So uh, Iowa State can win this game. They've proven they can beat Oklahoma. They beat them already uh, this year. But I think that this Oklahoma team 
is improved compared uh, to the Oklahoma team that Iowa State faced earlier this season. So I'm not surprised that Oklahoma is favored in this game. I'm not surprised that all three of our models uh, are, you know, have Oklahoma favored. Our stats only model has uh, the Sooners covering. We've got it at seven and a half, basically. Our talent edge model, there's a pretty big gap there. Oklahoma being one of the, you know, the second best recruiter in the Big 12 and Iowa State being a kind of middle of the pack and, and top 40 team nationally. So Oklahoma being favored by almost nine there, not a surprise. Our official number is much closer. We're actually on Iowa State to cover the five and a half, but uh, we do have Oklahoma winning this game by four. Our our final score prediction is is 33-29, a little higher scoring than than what the odds makers have. But, uh, you know, Iowa State covering, but Oklahoma uh, getting getting revenge for that earlier loss and and, uh, continuing, you know, their run of, of championships in the Big 12. Xavier, you were uh, moving around a lot while Nick was saying that. Are you uh, are you on Oklahoma or are you on Iowa State here? Yeah, I really like Oklahoma in this game uh, for a multitude of reasons. But the number one reason is because I think Spencer Rattler has finally grown up. In the time that they last played Iowa State, or since they played Iowa State, he's beaten Texas. He's beaten TCU on the road. He's beaten Texas Tech. He was able to beat Oklahoma State on the road. These are big wins for a freshman, for a guy who's his first year and in the Big 12 in a weird season, he had to find his footing, you know, obviously. And, and it didn't help that in back-to-back weeks he had to go play Kansas State, who beat them. And then you play Iowa State, who you lose to as well. And I, I really think that Spencer Rattler has taken that next step. Also, that defense that they played back in week three is not the defense that they're going to be facing this week. I will say one caveat. It does help when you play the lower half of the Big 12 with your defense that your defensive rating would go through the roof because you're playing lesser talent. That would help. However, I think their defense has made a bigger step, and I think we saw that against Oklahoma State in, in that ball game in particular, and that's the game I'm leaning on uh, when we talk about that defense. I'm not going to lean on the fact that they held Kansas to nine. There's a lot of teams that can hold Kansas to nine. But that game against Oklahoma State, they really showed how far that defense has come along, so I really like that. Like I said, Spencer Rattler, that was his first away game, really, in a hostile environment. That's not here in Arlington. He's in a neutral site, in a, in a real neutral site game where he's going to be playing an Iowa State team that I think isn't going to come into the game expecting the same defense. It isn't going to come into the game understanding the defense that it, that they're going to be facing. They didn't see Ronnie Perkins, and that's going to be a huge thing because I think Brock Purdy is going to be the reason why Iowa State wins or loses this ballgame because I think they're going to do – they're going to put seven in the box and force Brock Purdy to beat them. Similar to what Louisiana did to start the year against Iowa State, where they played man-to-man on the outside and forced Brock Purdy to be, you know, Tom Brady and make the throws. I think we'll see that on Saturday uh, against Iowa State. They're, going to, they're not going to let Brees Hall run for 148 yards, which is what happened in the last game, and run for the game-winning touchdown. They're going to force Brock Purdy to beat them, and that's the only way I see Iowa State winning this game if he has a good game. So I'm going to go with Oklahoma. They've got too much going for them right now. Spencer Rattler looks composed finally. The defense has finally come around. And I'm not sure if I can trust Brock Purdy to win a ball game by himself, which is something I think he'll be forced to do on Saturday. All right. So in the uh, Big Ten Championship, we have Northwestern versus Ohio State. This is where the odds, this is in Indy. <laughs> and this is where the uh, line gets a little bit bigger. Ohio State is a 20 and a half point favorite, 57 and a half state over. In that one, Nick, how do you see the the Big Ten title going down? Yeah, it's uh, not a surprise. I mean, these are two teams on on not necessarily the complete opposite of the talent spectrum across college football, but you know, in, in the Big Twelve. I mean, 
Northwestern, of course, is not a uh, super high uh, recruiting team year in and year out. They, do, they rely a lot on development, on, on uh, being able to, to, you know, coach guys up and, and, and find some of those hidden, uh, you know, hidden diamonds in the rough type guys. And, and uh, Ohio State doesn't have to do that. And, and they are, you know, elite, elite recruiters, the number one uh, overall team as, as far as our roster strength rating goes. They, they are a contender year in and year out for the number one recruiting class in the country. They have our second uh, best offense by uh, just term our, our talent numbers. They're number two offensively. They're number one defensively. And, and then, of course, number one overall. That's, that's a far cry from Northwestern, who is 54th on offense in, in our talent numbers, 30th on defense, and, and 43rd uh, overall as far as roster strength goes. But Northwestern does have a history of, you know, being able to, to play a little bit higher than their uh, talent numbers would suggest, especially on defense. And, and defensive team performance, they rank actually in the top 10 nationally. They rank 7th in the country. Uh, Ohio State is, is number 25. So Northwestern, at least on the field so far, has played better defense. Uh, but Northwestern, despite making a little bit of progress over 2019 when they had a, a, a really awful year, uh, just overall, you know, they, they've made some progress offensively, but they still only rank 98th in offensive team performance. So they're 40th in overall team performance. They're 37th in our overall power rankings. Ohio State is uh, number two, and, and they basically we've talked a lot about how they've kind of jockeyed back and forth between number one, number two, and number three, pretty much all preseason, all regular season. Right now, they're they're number two behind Alabama as far as our our power rankings go. So uh, they're they're an elite team, and even though they haven't been tested very much this year, even though the you know number of games is is pretty low and and the the talent is is relatively low, on paper this is a huge mismatch and Northwestern my, my only real thought was okay Northwestern typically can kind of ugly up a game to the point where they can keep it close enough to maybe have you know be within striking distance in the fourth quarter and and maybe if things uh you know click or or if things kind of fall the right way might be able to pull off an upset but the last two times these teams met that case really doesn't apply. I mean, I, I think that the actual talent advantage that Ohio State is just too big for Northwestern to overcome, even by uh, kind of the, the way that they are often able to kind of, uh, you know, overachieve in some instances. I mean, last year was a bad Northwestern team, but Ohio State beat them 52-3. to And then these two teams did meet in the Big Ten championship game in 2018, and as a 14-point favorite, Ohio State won uh, 45-24. So even though, uh, you know, Northwestern might try to, to ugly it up a little bit, might try to play keep away from uh, a more talented offense, uh, they haven't had that sort of success against Ohio State at, at least the last couple of times that they played. So Ohio State is, is rightly favored and, and rightly favored by a lot. And, uh, you know, our numbers – uh, though our, our stats model actually likes Northwestern a little bit more, thinks that they can keep it within two touchdowns. Uh, the talent model is, is, you know, Ohio State would be a 26-point favorite if talent were the only thing we looked at. But when we look at everything, 
Ohio State is is still you know almost a four touchdown favorite. Twenty seven point uh, three basically is is what our uh, projected uh, point spread would be. So forty one fourteen as our projected final score. You know that that does indicate maybe Northwestern can can slow things down for a little bit. But I think Ohio State is just too talented, too good, and probably with a you know a potential bid to the college football playoff on the line, might take an opportunity if it if it were to present itself for some style points. So I think they will want to put up forty or fifty or you know whatever they can get against Northwestern. So forty one fourteen looks okay on paper, especially when you got two ranked teams. Uh, and, and you know, in a in a conference championship game, probably would be enough. You would think to get them in the college football playoff. So that seems about right to me. I think this is a game that Ohio State certainly can and, and probably should cover uh, the twenty and a half. Xavier, how do you see the the Big Ten title game playing out? Is this a, a easy rollover win? Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be ugly. Uh, yeah, I, I don't like. This game, this matchup for Northwestern, you know, I think that Ohio State knows what's on the line. And, and Nick hit it right on the head. A blowout victory is what they need to cement themselves in the fourth spot. You know, and I, I think that that's the biggest deal, you know, about this game. And that's why I think Ohio State, in years past, you know, there was a couple of years ago, I think they had an upset loss to Wisconsin. And I was like, I saw that coming. I felt like at, the, at that point, Ohio State was felt like they were in, they were solidified. They didn't really need, you know, a, a big time performance. They know that the that the college ball playoff has put them at four because they have not been impressive up until this point. And this is what the only the only the second ranked game that they would have played all year. They need to win this game big and make a statement that suggests that, you know, even if you know, Alabama loses, you can't put Texas A&M in front of us. You know, like, they need that kind of a statement victory. I think they get that this week. I think Justin Fields rectifies his performance against uh, his performance against Indiana and puts up a really good performance this week. I'm looking at a game 42 to 20 if I'm giving Northwestern 20 points. I think this is a really easy win for uh, Ohio State. And they, and they move on to the college football playoff and uh, in, in what, what will be a pre- uh, impressive win, excuse me, over Northwestern. So. Now, the most exciting conference title game, in my opinion, is going to be the ACC championship uh, because yes. it includes Notre Dame. Yes. Uh, it's in Charlotte. Clemson is a 10.5-point favorite against Notre Dame. We saw this game play out earlier this year, but Trevor Lawrence wasn't in the game because of COVID. So now Clemson is back to being a favorite. Notre Dame won the last meeting, Nick. How do you see the ACC title game playing out here? Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of what I said in the Big 12 championship game kind of applies here. I mean, we know that Notre Dame can beat Clemson. And and yes, you're absolutely right that uh, Clemson was shorthanded with – not only Trevor Lawrence out, but but uh, some injuries on defense as well. It took a really long time for that defensive line to get healthy. They still have some injuries in, in the secondary and then the linebacking core. Uh, James Sklasky is is you know kind of day to day, week to week. It sounds like he, I believe, missed uh, the the earlier matchup as well. But uh, you know Notre Dame is is a legitimate team, and, and I was a little bit concerned earlier in the year. When we started to, you know, watch, they, they weren't that impressive against Duke, and then things got a little bit better as the season wore on. But pretty quickly, they established themselves as a top five, top six team in our power rankings, which felt a little high 
uh, earlier in the year to me, but they kept putting up week after week, you know, top five, top 10 consistently team performance ratings across the board. I mean, they're fifth in our overall team performance. They're ninth on offense and 10th on defense. We saw they were able to win a shootout against uh, Clemson, which, uh, you know, was was definitely a surprise. I mean, we saw the defense really clamp down on North Carolina, I think was one of the most impressive defensive performances of any team I've seen all season. Uh, and, and, you know, the defense slipped up a little bit against Clemson, uh, even with, a, a, you know, backup quarterback, true freshman DJ Uolongole. But, you know, one of the he's going to be one of the top quarterbacks in college football in, in 2021. So not necessarily, you know, shouldn't be shocked that Clemson was able to uh, carry over and, and have a lot of success there. So, you know, I, I think I was more impressed uh, certainly with the defensive performance against North Carolina, but pretty impressed that uh, Notre Dame was able to, you know, shoot it out with Clemson and, and come away with a win. Of course, that was a home game. Uh, home field advantage is not in 2020 what it was in, in previous years, but there still is certainly some benefit to that being on a neutral site or, you know, uh, really closer to a home game being in Charlotte, uh, right there, uh, you know, on the state line, basically with, with South Carolina Clemson close by, uh, will probably feel a lot more like a, a, a Clemson home game than it would a neutral site. But still, you know, that 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 changes factors a little bit. But we know that Notre Dame uh, will not be intimidated. We know that Clemson does have uh, elite elite players, and and you know, uh, is certainly uh, with a win into the college football playoff. With a loss, it gets a little gets a little hairy. So this is a game that they, they certainly will be ready for. I think both teams will be ready for. And, and uh, you know, even though uh, Notre Dame is, I think, rightly an underdog in, in this game, uh, I'm, I'm, I think, I think pleased that we are on Notre Dame and, and our, our official projection only has this as a five point uh, projected spread with, with Clemson as the favorite. That's pretty similar to what it was uh, the first time. And, uh, you know, our, our talent numbers, talent edge is, is even closer. Uh, Clemson would be less than a two-point favorite uh, with with even Trevor Lawrence back in the lineup uh, on this. So our, our stats-only model does like Clemson, has them favored by uh, just a little bit more than the 10 and a half. It's 10.69 specifically. But, uh, you know, that that's close enough that this is almost uh, an all three agree situation. And, and certainly, you know, we could see Clemson uh, blow out Notre Dame. I don't think that would shock me. But, you know, I, I think that this will be a good game. I think it will be, you know, basically a, a touchdown game if it's, uh, you know, 10 point. That that's certainly within the realm of possibility, but I think it's more likely to be a little bit closer. I'm, I'm glad we're on Notre Dame plus ten and a half. Uh, Clemson is is certainly capable of winning this game, and and you know maybe if everything clicks like it did against uh, you know Alabama a couple of years ago, we saw a pretty lopsided score. Similar situations could happen, but I think the more likely outcome and and the one certainly we uh, expect and and project is much closer. We've got Clemson 31, Notre Dame 27 as that final score prediction. Somewhere in that range seems about right to me. And if it plays out like that, then then I think both of these teams will be in the the college football playoff. Uh, Xavier, how do you see the ACC title playing out? I think Clemson wins this game. And I would be honest with you. I don't like Notre Dame in this game. I thought when I, when I looked at this ball game, 
and I rem- and looking, excuse me, looking at the previous game, Notre Dame got every everything right in that ball game, and I don't think they do it for a second time. And we and we talk about how close the score was and how they went into overtime, but we got to remember. Clemson has three turnovers in that ball game. One of them goes for a defensive touchdown. The first half for for Clemson was awful. I mean, they put up 13 points. Uh, you know, DJ looks awful in that first half. He finds his footing in the second, but he was forced to throw 44 passes because they were down by so much. So the play, the way that they wanted to play the game using Travis Etienne, he only got 18 carries, only for 28 yards. They really put eight in the box and said, "Force the young kid to throw it." And where he was able to bring them back, I don't think we see that sluggish start from Clemson in the in this game that Notre Dame was able to get out to a lead to in the first game. I think in the first game, you know, Clemson, Notre Dame goes into that halftime up twenty three to thirteen. I don't think we see that in this in this game in, in round two, and it's because Trevor Lawrence is back. The defense from Notre Dame is not going to work the way it did against uh, DJ as it is against Trevor. You're not going to be able to put seven in the box and play man to man on the outside. And hone in on Travis Etienne. Now that adds into the fact that now Travis Etienne is going to be able to run the football easier. There's going to be more lanes. You've got to put cover too. You've got to have help because Trevor Lawrence will throw the ball and he's a danger to run as well. I really like Clemson in this game. I like them by 10 plus. I think Clemson wins in somewhere in the range of 41 28. I don't like, I don't think Notre Dame is able to replicate that performance that they were able to. Uh, when they were at home. And the other part, Nick, is when you were talking about them having the home food advantage in that ball game. Yes, it's not the same. However, that was a freshman's first road game. And it was in and, and where it was, you've got to remember that for him, it's still the nerves. Primetime matchup. Number one, t- you know, one of the number one team in the country at the time is going on the road, completely different setting. More of a home game. This is Trevor Lawrence's third ACC championship game in a row. They're going to treat this like a normal Saturday. And I think Clemson comes out with a nice victory and knocks Notre Dame out of college football playoff uh, contention because of the, the margin of victory for Clemson. Now, the AAC championship game is uh, Cincinnati uh, uh, hosting Tulsa here. Cincinnati, 14.5 point favorite. 45.5 is the over, Nick. How do we see the AAC championship game uh, finishing up here? Yeah, it'll be, uh, you know, not not as much buzz, of course, about this one, except that Cincinnati is, at least in the, you know, college football playoff discussion, it, it seems like probably too big of a gap to uh, be able to, to, you know, close. It would have been better if they were able to play Tulsa in back-to-back weeks. Unfortunately, last week's uh, was canceled, and, and we haven't seen Cincinnati in a while. So hopefully they are uh, healthy. Hopefully they are, you know, at full strength and, and able to play. And, and I don't remember specifically if Tulsa had uh, some, some health issues as well uh, leading into, you know, why that game might've been canceled. So hopefully both teams are, are back to full strength, but it's been a little while for both of these teams, but you know, Cincinnati is, is been uh, one of the best G5 teams in, in college football. That, that you know, goes without saying everyone knows that, but they've been playing at basically the same level uh, of BYU all season. Uh, our numbers specifically, uh, give them a, a lot more respect than our numbers do for Coastal Carolina, who I said is, is still outside the top 30. Cincinnati is a top 10 team. They are eighth, number eight overall in our power rankings. And, and that is basically coming into the season was unheard of for a G5 team. Now, both BYU and Cincinnati have been able to do that at points. BYU with the loss a couple of weeks ago and not a great performance last week against San Diego State is 11th now. But, you know, Cincinnati's holding strong and, and they still have the number one 
defense in the country as far as our defensive team performance ratings go. They actually rank fourth in our overall team performance rating. So week in and week out, according to the stats uh, that, that we you know think correlate the most with who's winning on the field, uh, they are a top five team, a top four team, a playoff contending type team. And that's because they've taken a big step forward offensively and and they're playing at a top 20 level in offensive team performance. Desmond Ritter has been, uh, you know, as great as we thought he could be when he was, you know, week in and week out, uh, AAC freshman of the year, two years ago, or freshman of the week, excuse me, uh, two weeks ago, two years ago, uh, had a bit of a sophomore slump, but he's back and better than ever in, in 2020. And he's getting even a little bit of, you know, NFL draft buzz, I've, I've heard. And, and so, you know, that pair him with, you know, Jared Dokes and, and that offense has really helped to elevate its level of play to go up against what has been one of the elite defenses in college football. Tulsa has been playing at a very, very high level defensively specifically as well. Zayvon Collins, uh, I voted for as, as the Bidneric uh, award winner uh, most recently and, and was on my All-American ballot. He's He's been, in my opinion, the best single player, uh, defensive player in, in college football and has elevated not only that unit, but that team. They rank sixth in defensive team performance. Offense has been hit or miss. You know, Zach Smith, the, the Baylor transfer quarterback, has been good, had a little bit of a, a, an injury issue midseason, but they've had uh, depth at the running back position and they've needed it because they've had a, a guy on the shelf every year or every week, excuse me, it seems. But they've been able to do just enough and that defense has been able to play uh, just well enough that Tulsa's has been able to, uh, you know, put together a, a really, really impressive year and has earned their way into this game. I mean, Tulsa was a team that in our preseason rankings, I think was in the triple digits, if I remember correctly. I mean, they were in the, you know, 101, 102 range, but the the level of this defense specifically has really elevated this team. They're a top 40 team in our, in our numbers. I mean, they're a top 25 team in the playoff rankings. We're a little bit lower on them than that, but uh, this is a quality, quality team that's been playing top 10 defense all year and actually ranks 27th, which is very respectable in our overall team performance rating. So should be, should be a good game. And, and, you know, Tulsa has certainly beaten uh, teams that, you know, we did not expect them to. I think we had them as an underdog against SMU. We had them as an underdog, certainly against UCF. Uh, and, and, you know, the only loss that they've got was a very, very close game against Oklahoma State that everybody worried, you know, what in the world happened with Oklahoma State. Well, the Tulsa defense probably was was the answer to that. So we expect, a, a, you know, a, a good game. These are two quality teams. But, uh, you know, two of our three uh, projection models actually have Tulsa covering the 14 and a half, but our official number, uh, we do think Cincinnati is, is just, you know, just that good, especially uh, on defense, to be able to cover this this number. So it was fourteen and a half when we released our our projections officially uh, earlier this week. We have Cincinnati is about a sixteen point favorite, so a 36, uh, 36 to twenty final score projection, much higher scoring. Uh, we've talked about how our, our stats only model has been really really good on totals and over unders this year, but it's it's. Uh, basically always going to be on an over when it's in the 40s. And, and I don't love that, but, you know, we, we do have a little bit higher scoring. But two of our numbers, you know, talent edge model, single digits. The stats only model thinks Tulsa can keep it 
uh, to about a 12-point difference. So I would not be at all surprised if this were a one-score game. So I don't necessarily love that we're on Cincinnati to cover, uh, but our, our numbers do like the Bearcats this week. All right, Xavier, what do you think about this AAC title game? I, I love Cincinnati here. Uh, this is a team that when I, when I look at Cincinnati that deservedly is the best G5 team in the country. This this, this Cincinnati team has given me no reason to drop them whatsoever. If anything, they should probably feel a little bit hard done by that. They aren't ranked maybe a step higher. Uh, you know, obviously that means they would be ranked in front of my, my Georgia Bulldogs, but they, in my opinion, they've earned it. They, they've been far and away the best G5 team in the country all year, and they've done it on both sides of the ball in differing games. We wondered if they could score with Memphis. Not only did they shut Memphis down, but they also put up 49 points. We wondered if they can win a shootout game. They were able to do that against UCF. We wondered if they could slow down um, – if they could slow down SMU, they were able to do that and held them to 13 points. Like this, this Cincinnati team, every time we have a question, they answer it and they answer it, uh, answer it vehemently with with a performance that equals and, and betters the question that we were asking. And in this game, I think that they blow out Tulsa. I think this is a Tulsa team that has gotten lucky. I'll be honest with you. And sometimes, as Nick's favorite quote has been to me this year, being lucky is better than being good at times this year. And and, and he's been absolutely correct. But I think that Tulsa's luck run out, runs out here. Look, this is a team that has won three games, three games, but with being down by a, a field goal or more in the last five minutes of a ball game and have able to been able to eke out every single one, East Carolina, uh, UCF, if I'm not mistaken, as well. They were able to do it against Tulane, uh, where they literally scored, I think it was 21 points in the fourth quarter. I think their luck runs out here. They're running into an absolute buzzsaw in Cincinnati, and I think we see that on on Saturday. Cincinnati win this game, wins this game big, and they cover. Uh, and I really like Cincinnati to be a team that might be able to beat one of these Power Five teams in a New Year's Six Bowl. I really want to see them in a matchup against possibly a Florida or a Texas A and M or even a Georgia. I think that would be really really fun to see uh, coming. That that would be a great game to see. And speaking yeah. of of Florida. Do we think that they can do the unthinkable and lose to LSU and then go into the SEC title game in Atlanta against Alabama? They're 17-point dogs, 74-and-a-half, very, very high over for a conference title game, especially in the SEC. That's the highest one we have of the week here, too. Um, Nick, can, can Florida, do they have any chance of pulling this game out at all? I think so. And it's, uh, I, I, I don't have a high level of confidence, but it, it seems sort of like the situation is very similar to the one that Florida walked into last week against LSU, where you're going up against a team that is a heavy underdog and deservedly so because, you know, Florida had been the better team all year. Uh, same, same this year. Alabama has been the best team in college football uh, this season. I mean, they're, they're number one in our power rankings, ha have been for the most part all year. They are number one in our team performance rankings. They, they've been playing uh, in an elite, elite level. They've got the top two uh, betting favorites for the Heisman Trophy and Mac Jones and Devontae Smith. Uh, their defense, which was a little bit of a question mark earlier in the year, is getting better and better 
each week. They are, you know, as far as a talent standpoint, they're number two in our numbers overall behind Ohio State, but it's razor, razor thin margins. And, and uh, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, just pure talent. Alabama is is number one going away. And, and also, you know, we've been up against Alabama in our all three agree situations a lot this year. I uh, my computer is is uh, not uh, really wanting to cooperate with me, so I'm having a little trouble recalling our our uh, official number in those situations this year. But it's it's been pretty good. It's been in the 55 percent range, which we're really really happy with, and that includes losses because we've gone up against Alabama in. Uh, let's see, against LSU, we were on all three degree, Auburn, all three degree, Kentucky, uh, Mississippi State for sure. I I think maybe Tennessee. So I think we've got five losses that are only uh, when we're going up against Alabama to, to cover, uh, you know, th- thinking the opponent can cover. Finally, our official projection, uh, you know, thought that the number was was not quite big enough against Arkansas last week, so we didn't have an all-three situation, thankfully, because Alabama, again, covered easily. So, you know, we, we don't have a good track record in this situation, but Florida is, you know, the, the projected point spreads in all three of our uh, models is – smaller than 17 points. And, and uh, it's a situation where, you know, kind of like last week, Florida going up against LSU, the talent isn't that different. LSU still had guys that, that you know, on paper uh, were talented enough to, you know, rank in, in the top 10 in our overall uh, talent numbers. And, and to, to be able to cover, you know, three touchdowns against a team like that takes a really, really special opponent. Alabama was able to do it. Florida wasn't. But, you know, similar situation here. If talent were the only thing we're looking at, Florida would only be about a six and a half point underdog. And that's a pretty, that's a bigger number probably than I would have expected in, in the preseason. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's still much, much closer than 17. Our stats only model, Florida's performed really, really well with the possible exception of last week against LSU. But also remember what I said at the very beginning of the show, the, uh, post-game win expectancy in that game, if you were to play that 100 times and Florida and LSU were both to put up those same exact box scores, Florida would win that game almost 99% of the time, or maybe even more than 99% of the time. So uh, the way our, our sort of below-the-level numbers, our advanced numbers that, that we pay attention to when we're doing team performance, uh, that – almost treats that game as a Florida win. And of course it wasn't. And of course there's uh, some, you know, uh, uh, psychological factors that go in, but you know, the, the Florida played well enough with a, with a couple of very, very costly mistakes to win that game 99 times out of a hundred. So our stats only model thinks that Florida can, can keep it respectable. It's 10 and a half basically would be the, the point spread there. So, you know, throw that in, throw in all the coaching stuff. Nick Saban, best coach of all time, in my opinion, has an elite elite offense. One of the best we've ever seen has a defense that's improving, has one of the most talented rosters in college football for sure. Throw it all together. And we've still got Alabama only as a 14 and a half point favorite. So, Obviously, our numbers so far this year haven't been able to keep up with just how good Alabama is. We're on a five-game or so losing streak. 
picking against Alabama when all three of our numbers agree. On the one hand, that's not great. On the other, hey, maybe we're due. These situations for us have been really, really good all year. Uh, and, you know, it hasn't worked out against Alabama, but maybe, maybe now's the time. So I don't think Florida will win this game. But like I said, against LSU, you know, maybe it wouldn't be a shock if everything that went wrong last week goes right this week. It could happen. Uh, but I, I do think that there are plenty of scenarios in which Florida is able to keep this game respectable, able to keep it within 17. So even though our, our numbers have been really, really bad in this situation going up against Alabama, I think I would rather be on Florida plus 17 here. Xavier, do you share that opinion or are you going to take Alabama and give the points? Yeah, I, I think this is going to be a really close game in the first half. Um, I, I think that this game is going to be a tale of two halves. I genuinely do. And also, Nick, I want to ask you a quick question. And this is just completely hypothetical. Does your talent edge currently have Jalen Waddle as hurt or healthy? Hurt. Mm, okay. All of our all okay. of our numbers have them have uh, taken into account injuries, suspensions, opt-out, transfers, all that good stuff. And we haven't had a Waddle in our, our uh, team profiles in the in the depth charts since his injury. So if, if he were able to come back, then that number would go up a little bit. But just one player, and they're still, what, number two in our receiver rankings, even without Waddle, or number three. So uh, it's uh, – uh, yeah, uh, it, it would it would make it a little bit a little bit better, but Waddle specifically wouldn't be worth the three points. That that's the difference there. Okay, I was just asking because obviously the clip has gone around with him out of a walking boot, lining up, looking completely healthy to me. I don't know if he's going to play on Saturday. However, if he were to, I got Alabama by thirty. <laughs> Devontae Smith in his own right is just a monster in his own right, and I, and I think it's funny how good Alabama has been. And the and the lack of coverage maybe that they've gotten this year, you know, I, Alabama has just quietly just rolled through everybody. You know, no pun intended. They have done, they have just completely rolled through everybody. And, and I think that that doesn't change. I think Florida's just, you know, Gator tastes good to them. It's just gonna keep going because I don't see them stopping them in any way, shape, or form. This is a Florida team that I think, you know, you look at their wins this year. They've been been they've been the beneficiary of, of some. In, of injuries from other teams, obviously they played a much less uh, less uh, better Georgia team defensively due to the fact that they had all of those injuries coming to that ball game. I think offensively, Florida has been really uh, potent. However, their defense has not been really consistent all year. They've given up thirty five to Ole Miss. They've given up. They gave up, if I'm not mistaken, forty to Ole Miss as well, as well as giving up thirty seven to an LSU team last week. And now you're playing the best offense in the country where they can throw it to Devontae Smith seven times and he'll catch it six, or they can run it 26 times with Najee Harris and he'll have 206 yards and three touchdowns. I don't see where Florida stops them from getting whatever they want to get. And I think Alabama wins this game by 21 points. I'm looking at a final score. Uh, and I think the over-under is actually pretty accurate. I think 74 points might be you know, somewhere around the a pretty good guess for where this game ends up being, because I think both offenses are just that good. I mean, I'm thinking in a range of a of a 52 to, to, to 30 something type game. I really do, uh, because I think Alabama's going to have to put up that many points to win this game. And I also think Florida's going to try to keep pace with them. And like I said, it wouldn't be surprising to me if it's 28, 28 and a half going into half time. And then Alabama comes out in the second half, makes the proper adjustments, scores three or four touchdowns, 
and puts them to bed and puts it to rest pretty early. I like Alabama in this game big. Um, yes, Nick, if everything, including the will of God, is able to help Florida win this game, sure, they have a chance. But that is a massive, massive, massive if uh, that I don't think that they're going to be able to overcome on Saturday. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Alabama's just looked dominant this year. They look like the best team in college football, and it uh, seems like it's going to play out that way, but that's why they play the games. Uh, last thing before we go here, Nick, all three agree. Uh, very limited this week. Of course, we have a limited slate. Yeah, uh, it, it uh, was. It, it took a little while when I was running the numbers to, to actually even get to uh, our very first uh, all three agree situation. I thought maybe we'd get through the whole uh, whole week without one, but uh, we are on Louisiana plus three and a half. As I mentioned, we are on Florida plus 17. As I mentioned, the only other two uh, make some sense to me. And usually I'll tell you, you know, oh, I don't, I don't love this one or I hate that one or, or whatever. Michigan State plus two and a half against Maryland seems about right to me. And, and that number might have actually come down a little bit since it was uh, officially released to our patrons on, on uh, Tuesday. And then Stanford plus seven. Now, Stanford. Stanford, of course, has been away from home for weeks now, and, and uh, that's got a little bit of its own situation, and, and UCLA is much improved. But seven seems like a lot, and, and UCLA, I don't know that I can trust them quite yet to, to really you know win a game that they're supposed to win and, and cover it. So I, I think I'm pleased that we're on Stanford. I think I'm pleased that we're on Michigan State. And I, I – you know, I, I don't have as high a confidence in the Florida or the Louisiana, but I feel better about these four than I have in, in a few weeks on, on a lot of ours. So, you know, probably means we'll go one and three, row and four. Uh, but, uh, you know, so far this, this has been a good subset for us. We're at uh, 56% on the season. We're 102, 80, and one. When all three of our numbers agree, we were nine and six last week. And, uh, you know, feel, feel, pretty good about you know where we've gotten uh certainly doesn't doesn't mean we'll uh you know past results are not always a guarantee of future success but i i do have a little bit higher level of confidence in these four than i have in some of the the weeks past when we've had 12 or 15 or or something like that and, and there are a lot of them that i just really didn't like so uh hopefully that'll that'll work out for us but uh yeah limited slate this week and, and smaller numbers and i i don't hate it we'll, we'll keep you know keep our exposure low uh, here in the final, <laughs> final weeks. All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up for us this week. Good luck in all your bets. Uh, you know, good luck to all, all of you uh, fans that have teams in conference championship games. Uh, we are not any of them, but uh, it should be a fun weekend nonetheless. So remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Bogman Sports for me, at CFP Winning Edge for Nick, and at Xavier Trish, at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E for Xavier. And we will see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. The CFB Winning Edge podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. You can support this show and help fund our 2021 off-season improvements by visiting patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge and pledging as little as $5 per month. Thank you to all who have supported us this year, making 2020 our best season yet.